Welcome to episode 31 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. Will Smith has ADHD, and the reason that we have Will Smith the actor is because when Will Smith was a rapper, he forgot, and I believe he did forget rather than avoided, putting in his tax returns. He got caught out, he had a huge tax bill, so he took the job as the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Hi, I'm Rowan, and today we're speaking with Professor David Cogill, who is a child and adolescent psychiatrist and holds the Chair for Developmental Mental Health at the University of Melbourne. Professor Cogill has a particular interest in ADHD, disruptive behaviour and pharmacopsychology, so the study of how medicine is used for treating mental disorders. I actually met Professor David Cogill at the Melbourne 2021 ADHD conference, which was put together by an organisation called My Special Child. I was emceeing the conference and I was sitting uh, on the side having a chat with Professor Cogill as the next presenter and um, I was just really taken by his passion, energy and enthusiasm for helping people with ADHD and educating. So today we'll be doing a deep dive into the world of ADHD, how many people are affected by it, how it transitions into adulthood, how clinicians test for it, the social pressures on getting results one way or the other. And finally, what the science says around medication and how effective it is. Today's podcast is brought to you by talklink.com.au. It's an online directory where you can search for and find a mental health professional with a particular focus area, like an expert in ADHD. Users can even see a short video of the therapist to decide whether this is someone that they would like to connect with. We're hearing that in the fallout of the pandemic, that there's a huge strain on the mental health professional community at the moment, and that lots of professionals have huge waiting lists, and that the usual clinicians that GPs refer to often can't take new patients. The great thing about TalkLink is that all of the clinicians on the platform have capacity to see new clients. Reaching out to talk to someone is often a big deal, and the last thing you'd want to do is be bumped around from waiting list to waiting list. Lastly, to all of our overseas listeners, the clinicians on TalkLink all do online consultations, and you may even find with your currency conversion that may be cheaper than your local alternative. Okay, let's dive in. So ADHD stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Um, what sounds like a really simple question, what is ADHD, is actually, you know, I think quite quite complex, and the more you look at it, the more complex it can get. But essentially... ADHD is a disorder. It's what we call a neurodevelopmental disorder. So it arises because of differences in the way that people's brains are developing. It's something that is present from very early on in life in most people, but it affects people differently as they get older. And maybe we'll get into that later. Um, but ADHD is defined as uh, essentially a, a, a set of three core symptom groups. So difficulty concentrating, the attention part, hyperactivity or overactivity, and impulsivity. And within each of those, we have sets of symptoms that we look for, that we, we define as typical of ADHD for, for the inattention, it's things like um, 
difficulty focusing on your work, difficulty continuing to focus on your work. People have difficulty in listening, not refusing to listen, but it seems like things go in one ear and out the other for them. Difficulties organizing, easily distracted. Hyperactivity kind of speaks for itself, but these are fidgety people um, who have difficulty sitting still. They can have a kind of supercharged motor and, and find um, being able to stop themselves from moving, even when they know that they should be sitting still, really difficult. And then impulsivity, again, it speaks for itself, but these are people who butt in, who act now and think later, they can be very over-talkative and actually um, can upset their friends and their family just because they won't, they won't shut up. Um, now, one of the, the things you might be thinking and the listeners might be thinking is, well, everyone has a bit of that. And that's true. Everybody has these symptoms uh, at some point, uh, not just some point in their life, but probably some point most weeks or, or, or some days. But in ADHD, it's really quite different. These are pervasive in that they're there uh, a lot of the time, but really importantly, they cause problems for that person. So for many of us, we can be a bit forgetful and it's okay, it doesn't really cause much of a, a difficulty. But for people with ADHD or for us to consider these types of symptoms as really indicating ADHD, we say that they need to be uh, significantly impairing. It's a judgment call, but it's one that you learn to make and to, 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 to understand. And not just significantly impairing in one aspect of someone's life, but across multiple aspects. We say it has to be at least two. So for children, that would be at home, in the family, and at school, for example. But also it might be in the community uh, when they go to clubs. And for adults, we're thinking more about at home, in, in their relationships at home, and in the workplace, or at college, if, it's, if we're talking about students. So the key is that you have the symptoms, that the symptoms are there consistently, but also that they're um, impairing your day-to-day -day life. And that's really what we define as being ADHD. I thought it used to be called ADD, mm. and now it's called ADHD. Is that a separate thing? Well, so ADD doesn't exist anymore. They just have, um, and what the ADD used to be the attention deficit disorder without the hyperactivity. It's been through various different names. It's now pretty much universally ADHD, but you can have what they call an inattentive presentation. So it's still called ADHD, but it doesn't have the H or the I. It doesn't have the hyperactivity or the, the impulsivity, but they've gone away from calling it an inattentive, this is a bit nerdy, but they've gone away from calling it an inattentive type because actually they've noticed that people do shift between different types. So they call it presentation now, but actually there, there, there are a subset of people that never show the hyperactivity and impulsivity. And that tends to be more common in, in women than it is in, um, than it is in men. Yeah. And, 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 you know, we, we don't know why that would be the case. Um, 
you know, we know why kids, why, you know, many other reasons why girls with ADHD don't get recognized because say they, they're at the back of the class and they're not disruptive. They don't have the same oppositional behavior, but that's a very different thing than saying, why do girls not have hyperactivity and impulsivity? And we don't know that yet. Mm. So give us a sense of how many children and then also how many adults this affects. Okay. So in percentages, about 5% of children meet those criteria for ADHD. It's interesting, actually, because uh, I said that most people have some of those symptoms. And if we just looked at the symptoms of ADHD, that figure would be up at around 20, 25% of kids might meet those symptom criteria. But when we add in the uh, requirement for impairment, we're talking about 5%. And actually, that's a figure that's consistent across the world. And it's been consistent across time, at least for the last 30 years. ADHD itself isn't becoming any um, more common. It's our recognition. And again, we'll probably talk about that um, as we go through this, this discussion. So that's kids. And, and for adults, some people grow out of their ADHD but around two and a half percent of adults will continue to meet the criteria for ADHD. And to put that into context for Australia, where if I remember rightly, we've got about 26 million people, that's about 850,000 Australians with ADHD living Adults. with ADHD in total. Yeah. Um, the, the, there are more adults than there are children because adulthood is a lot longer than children. Um, uh, the figures are around half a million adults and uh, 350,000 um, children, but um, around that. So it, it's a very common problem. Okay, so I have a million questions and I'm sure our listeners do too, but um, let's just go back one step. Let's imagine we're sitting at a playground observing a group of playing children and let's say that one of the boys has ADHD, they're diagnosed, and then also one of the girls has ADHD. What sorts of differences would you expect to see in the playground between the behavior that the boy might display relative to the girl? Is it identical or are there changes that we're aware of? Ah, that's a really good question and a really interesting question. And, you know, unfortunately, none of these have really simple answers, Ran. But so, so the real answer, the, the first part of the answer is you might see no difference at all. That girls and boys with ADHD can both have the hyperactive, impulsive and inattentive parts, and they can be indistinguishable from each other. However, with girls, it's more common to see the inattentive parts of ADHD. So the poor concentration, the distractibility, the um, forgetfulness, than it is to see the combined inattention and hyperactivity and impulsivity. And so if we went out of the playground and into the classroom, the boy with ADHD may be more likely to be the one who's jumping up, who's distracting everyone else, who's kind of grabbing all that attention because of his hyperactive and impulsive behaviors, 
Whereas the girl might be more likely to be the one at the back of the class who no one notices, who is in a kind of dream world and um, not paying attention to what's going on. But because she's not as overactive, because she's not as impulsive as the boy with ADHD, then she's actually even less likely to be noticed or to be correctly picked out as having ADHD. And you said at the beginning there that we've got a boy and a girl who've got a diagnosis of ADHD. One of the things that's really important for us to recognize is that of those 850,000 Australians with ADHD, only a small minority of them have actually ever been given a diagnosis. So most of the people in Australia with ADHD don't actually have a diagnosis. They may recognize that there's something different about themselves, but they probably won't know what that is and they won't be receiving treatment for it. Hmm. We've just had conversations with experts at personality disorders and of course it's a very different very different area of of focus Um, but some of the themes that have come up in those conversations are sometimes diagnosis isn't necessarily helpful Um, what are your views on the importance of diagnosis for ADHD and I, I do want to get to treatment options and I guess this all dovetails into that but how important is it for us to get out there and you know, start testing kids and is it just a case of some kids will be busy and that's okay and they might have ADHD, they may not, that's okay? Or should we really be being more diligent to try and capture all these cases? Yeah, well, um, again, a really important question. Um, If we go back to the definition of ADHD, that it's not just about symptoms, it's about impairment, then by definition, everybody who meets the diagnostic criteria for ADHD is having significant impairment based on those symptoms. And because we have treatments for ADHD that are very effective, then my view is that we should be going out and more actively looking to identify those um, people with ADHD, both children um, and adolescents, as well as adults, um, because we can provide help for them. I think probably when we're talking about some of the personality disorders and also some other uh, neurodevelopmental disorders, we don't have as good and effective treatments and therefore that balance might be different. But I think for ADHD, we do. That doesn't mean, and it's not the same as saying that everybody with ADHD should receive medication Mm. as one of the treatments, but everybody with ADHD should have the opportunity to be provided with support that can reduce the impairments they're having. And for some of them, maybe even many of them, that might be medication, but it's medication would only ever be a part of what we would provide for for people. And so knowing about ADHD, knowing what it is, knowing the limitations, knowing the effects at an individual level can actually provide help for people 
with ADHD, and, and therefore I think it's important. Okay, I have two questions from this point then. Let's say you have a child that you believe may have ADHD. Um, let's say you take them to an expert such as yourself for a test. What sort of test are they about to do? What will they experience in that test? How long will it take? Um, and how will that differ if you're an adult that you believe, you know, as an adult, hey, maybe I have ADHD. How do the tests differ? How accurate are they? Um, and what sort of reliance do we have on the, on, you know, the results? Okay. So first off, this is an easy question. There are no tests. We don't actually have a test for ADHD. And that's actually a really important point because I think some people still think there are tests that can identify ADHD. And so they could go to a psychologist or a neuropsychologist and uh, participate in some uh, psychological testing. And that would tell you whether or not you had ADHD. Although there are um, cognitive impairments, cognitive problems, thinking problems that can be tested and can be associated with ADHD, the relationship isn't particularly tight between the outcome of the test and whether or not you've got ADHD. So you could, um, I'm going to say, fail a test or do poorly in a test, but that doesn't mean that you've got ADHD. But more importantly, you could do well on several of the tests that people use and still have ADHD. Because behind the fact that everyone with ADHD has the same symptoms, they also have very different causes for their symptoms, and many of which we are still trying to fully understand. So the tests aren't reliable, but we don't do tests, we do assessments, and we use interviews. And we have some very good structured questions that we ask, that we look for identifying the symptoms, and then we're asking about impairments and we're asking for examples. And if you do an assessment using a structured approach, then actually they're very reliable. And indeed ADHD assessments are some of the most reliable in mental health. So actually it's more reliable to do a structured assessment for ADHD than it is for depression. And that's the same for children as it is for adults. The difference is that we have to ask questions in a different way for adults than we do for children. So it's a different set of skills that one needs to uh, learn, that one needs to um, understand for asking those questions in adulthood and the way that ADHD impacts on you in adulthood than it does for, for children. And, and I'm actually, I've just started, um, I, I spent most of my career seeing um, young people up to the age of 18. I've just started to work in a youth psychiatry setting where I'm seeing young adults up to the age of 25, 26. And um, even though I've been doing this for many, many years, it's made me go back and reevaluate the questions that I ask, reevaluate the way I look for symptoms and impairment. And so it's a skill 
but it's a skill that you can learn. And once you've learned it or, or been trained in it, then actually it's no more difficult than making um, other mental health assessments. Hmm. You touched on a couple of things that I want to explore there. The first was you talked about um, some of the causes. Uh, could you dive into that a little bit? And I, I don't want to dismiss any of the other areas you've talked about because there's just so much content and all that, but let's take this step by step. Um, why do people get ADHD then? Okay, so a large part of the risk of getting ADHD comes from your genes. It's a very highly heritable condition. So we talk about uh, heritability, meaning how likely is something to have been passed down from parents to a child. And the heritability of ADHD is 85%. Wow. That's about Gosh. the same as height. Now, I remember, Ruan, you're a, a, a tall guy. I'm a very short guy. Um, we're probably at the ends of the normality for that. And um, the reason for that was because our parents were also uh, taller or, or shorter, at least a large part of that is. Um, ADHD and height are about as heritable as each other. So um, a, a, a lot of the risk of having ADHD comes from your genes, but that doesn't mean that the environment isn't important. And there are actually lots of interactions between the environment and probably the environment prenatally before you're born. So the environment during gestation will interact with genes, uh, your genetics and your, your genetic risk factors. And then um, that leads into differences in the way in which the brain develops and these differences in ways in which the uh, different parts of the brain develop and communicate with each other are then almost certainly the cause of ADHD. Hmm. So basically nature, nurture, both of those, but yeah. mainly nature, Well, a little bit of nurture. Yeah, uh, uh, probably more than a little bit of nurture because some of that, what we call heritability, is probably the interaction between nature and nurture. It's just hidden and we, we see it, it looks as if it's heritability. So there's still a lot of unanswered questions. Why are they unanswered? Well, the brain is so complex in its, um, in its structure, its function, and its development uh, that it's very difficult to look at. But we're working very hard to increase our understanding of, of, of this. Uh, but the other big, not uh, problem, well, the, the big issue that we come up as I, I, I indicated before is actually your ADHD and my ADHD may have come from very different causes. So they both might have been uh, genetic, but they're actually maybe different genetics. So we've got to parcel out that variability. There's no, we're never going to find, well, there isn't the gene for ADHD. It doesn't exist. There are multiple genes that interact with each other, each of them having a small effect and if they're there in the right pattern, then that increases the risk enough for, uh, for, for, for you to have ADHD. But similarly, at a bigger level, in the way in which the brain is functioning, your ADHD and my ADHD might have quite different roots in different parts of our brain that maybe haven't matured quite as 
uh, much as we would have hoped. Hmm. You talked about how in your career you've mainly been working with children and young adolescents and now you're transitioning to dealing more with adults. Can you talk a little bit about how you see it being expressed differently in that transition and how ADHD that persists into adulthood transforms into into adult ADHD? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, there are many similarities as well as differences, and that's really important to, to say, particularly similarities in the way in which adults experience the concentration difficulties, the organizational difficulties. Um, they experience them in different contexts because as you get older, you're expected to do more for yourself, to support yourself more. As you get older in education, the scaffolding that's there at um, primary school, then secondary school, when you get to university, for example, it's not there. You have to do this work yourself. You have to set your own timetables. So in actual fact, sometimes adults experience their ADHD as more troublesome, the inattention and concentration difficulties as more troublesome because the scaffolding that they've had there from their parents and from teachers and from the organization around them is pulled back. So for, as far as inattention goes, you see it uh, actually often as, as more difficult. The hyperactivity tends to reduce, at least it does visibly. When we imagine, in fact, when we see young uh, kids with ADHD, their hyperactivity is really apparent. Uh, you know, I've had kids kicking soccer balls around the clinic room um, because they just couldn't sit still. And it wasn't out of badness that they were doing it. It was because they, they, they just needed to do something. As we get older, we become more able to contain our physical impulses. And that's the same with people with ADHD. So they appear to be less hyperactive. However, if you ask them about inattention, inner restlessness, they're still really feeling that. So I've often challenged people who say the hyperactivity decreases. It does visibly but we all become you know, more able to sit for longer as we get older. But for the person with ADHD, it's still difficult to do that. They just manage it better than they did as, as Charles. And my experience is, is that the impulsivity also stays. And that then can become a real big problem for adults. Again, kids have more scaffolding around them. And by scaffolding, I mean people to you know, check their behavior and to stop them from making really silly decisions. Not all the time, they, they do do that. But of course, adults don't really have that. And the kind of decisions they can make are often much more um, important or, or potentially dangerous. So substance misuse is much higher in people with ADHD than without. And that impulsive, yes, okay, I'll try it is something that we see quite a lot. Motor vehicle accidents. Now, un unfortunately, children with ADHD suffer a lot more accidents than uh, children without ADHD. They're the ones that run out into the street or don't stop their bike when they uh, get to a junction. 
as adults that can become um, becoming more dangerous as a driver of a motor vehicle. Um, and, and, and so, you know, we know that, that those with ADHD are more likely to be involved both as a pedestrian and as a driver in, in crashes. And then this may or may not surprise you, but if we look in our prison system, about a third of prisoners have ADHD. Why do they get there? Because they often impulsively um, will break rules and break the laws and do it and more, more consistently. So very high levels um, of, of ADHD in, in those, those kind of settings. Do you ever see it mobilized for something extremely positive? I know we've been talking about um, almost the definition of it as being something that's disruptive to your life, that's not helping. Um, but sometimes when you look at the sorts of habits and lifestyles that elite athletes or entrepreneurs or business people require, um, that level of energy um, is just so high. Do you ever, in your opinion or philosophically, see ADHD being mobilized to help people get that edge in a competitive context? Can it be harnessed? Mm-hmm. You've asked that in a better way than most people ask it. And, and you're, you're right. There are occasions when ADHD can um I think your, your words are right, be mobilized or be, um, be, be brought into someone's life to um, make positive, um, positive effects. And it's interesting. I don't know, Ryan, if you saw a slide, I have a slide with some famous people with ADHD. Um, one of those is Richard Branson. Um, Richard Branson, entrepreneurial, um, makes quick decisions uh, sharp decisions and he's made you know he's obviously a very bright guy he's made some fantastic business choices and probably his ADHD has been part of helping him have an edge there but the real point of my slide with these famous people I'll mention a couple of others in a in a second is that not only have they been successful but they've also had other difficulties in their lives so often those positive aspects of ADHD can be linked with other um, more negative uh, aspects of of life. So with Richard Branson, he's also made some spectacularly poor business decisions and um, lost companies and lost himself and other people a lot of of money. Will Smith is one of my favourite ones to talk about. Will Smith has ADHD. And my understanding is that the reason that we have Will Smith, the actor, is because when Will Smith was a rapper, which is what he started as, a very successful rapper, he, um, he forgot, and I believe it is, he did forget rather than avoided, putting in his tax returns. He got caught out. He had a huge tax bill, so he took the job as the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and to pay his taxes. To pay his taxes, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's also had, you know, significant relationship difficulties. Um, and, and so there are lots of other people who have been very successful and maybe part of their success is a reflection of their ADHD. Mark Phelps, the swimmer, another oh, one. Yeah. So there are athletes in that pool. Yeah, 
ADHD. Yeah. <laughs> no pun intended. Um, no. <laughs> a- ADHD and a very successful swimmer. Now, he said that his ADHD or conquering his ADHD was part of his uh, path to success as a swimmer. Of course, he also had difficulties um, with some driving while intoxicated offences, um, drug issues. And again, that's likely to have been related to the ADHD. So it's, it's something where I think there can be benefits, but often those benefits are uh, alongside real difficulties that, that people have. So uh, I, I like the way though that you asked about that because it, it is, it's a balance there. There can be some positive bits, but also, again, because of that definition, we wouldn't call something ADHD unless it was also having some real impact on people's lives. Hmm. I want to move on to treatment. Uh, I do remember in your presentation, and I was sitting with my back to the screen facing the audience uh, just on the side. So I, I was one of those weirdos twisting around, taking pictures of my phone, zooming in to see what you'd written. And uh, I hope with your permission, we can share some of these to, to our, uh, with our audience. Um, but I remember there's one slide and I'm going to look at my little snip here. Um, you talked about treatment and it was just an amazingly insightful slide because in that slide, you had six different types of treatments and the effectiveness of each treatment. Now, if, if you'd humor me and let me read these off for our listeners, uh, I'd love to ask you to dive into these a little bit more. But you had number one, restrictive or elimination diets. You had artificial food colorings, which surprised me that it was even there and the results surprised me even more, but I'll let you go into that. Omega-3 fatty acids, um, cognitive training, neurofeedback, and parent training, which also surprised me, the results for that one. Could you dive into the treatments for ADHD a little bit? And let's park medication um, for sort of the, the step two after this. Yeah. So these were the results of a very large cooperative piece of work that I did with colleagues um, actually around the world, but, but mainly colleagues in Europe, where we looked at all of the published literature, looking at these non-drug treatments for ADHD. And we focused on these six because these were the six that had the largest um, evidence there. And they're also the ones that were most prominently on people's minds as potential treatments for ADHD. And we did something important, which is important to say because it affected the results, that we looked at these treatments and their effects in two ways. First, we did the traditional look, which meant that um, the people who were rating the effects of the treatment were probably aware of what treatment the person had had. So for example, for parent training, it was usually the parents who were rating whether or not it worked. And that makes a difference because if you know that you've invested a lot of time and effort in doing a treatment, and most of these treatments take a lot of time and a lot of effort, then it's more likely that you'll be a bit biased to say that it had an effect because you've got to kind of justify your time. And more likely that you'll say it had an effect compared to 
waiting, not getting a treatment. But we also, and the results that you saw, were looking at people rating the effects of treatment who didn't know what treatment was given. So we call that being blind to the treatment. So the treatment had been given, but the person who was rating whether it worked or not didn't know whether the person had a treatment or had a dummy treatment, a placebo treatment. And we found big differences. All of the treatments worked if you knew what had been given. But if you were a lot stricter about it and you said, does this really work? Does somebody who doesn't know what the treatment was say it works, then you've got different results. And if I go through those, these restricted elimination diets, these are something that's actually very difficult for people to do. You have to strip away your eating to the bare basics. So very bland diet. And then one thing at a time, you add in a new food stuff and you look to see, does adding in that new food stuff make a difference? Now, um, what we found was that it may make a difference. However, that difference was all shown just in one study. All the other studies didn't show a difference. And so we felt that the jury was still a bit out on these treatments because that one study was done very differently by a different group. And that group went on to say, well, actually no one else can do the treatment the way we do. And so we were thinking, well, if nobody else can do it apart from one group in one city, in one country, this isn't really a very good treatment for people in another city or another country. So restrictive elimination diets may work, but our jury was out. Food additives, yeah. yeah, food additives was really interesting. For this, there was a very clear effect. And this was food colorings. And so what was done here was instead of taking away everything from someone's diet, you took out the artificial food additives, the colorings, and you look, does it have a difference? And actually, yes, there was a very clear difference, and it was quite a significant difference. Interestingly, in the UK, which is where the research was conducted, these food colorings have now been outlawed, and they're no longer available in food. So it's not a treatment that we have to do, because you can't get it. Unfortunately, in Australia, in the US, and in most of the rest of the world, these food additives are still part of diet. And it's actually very difficult to go through specific foods and say, you shouldn't have this, you shouldn't have that. But um, in, in the UK, we used to call them Smarties, but here uh, they would be like in America, M&Ms. And yeah. blue Smarties were always the ones no, that people said not the made blue ones to their kids. Yeah, blue Smarties. Oh. Um, okay. However, I think M&Ms are slightly different and it may be a different coloring ramp, but so you can still eat them. Um, but the, the message to parents is, is that there may be some foods with some artificial food colorings or additives in them that their child is particularly sensitive to. And if they notice that, then they should probably avoid that food. 
can you um, can you can you remember some of the additives off the top of your head, or can we put a resource in for anyone who is interested to know? We can put a resource in, Ran. I can't remember them yeah. off the top of my head, but we can we can find that and link that to this to, to this page. I'm guessing there's probably a whole list of them, and um, yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. But but, and, but and blue Smarties are no good, huh? Blue Smart, well, yeah, but blue M and M's might be fine. I'm I'm not going to get uh, red cordial. Uh, don't know. Don't know. Yeah, because growing up, we always had the the joke amongst the parents. Oh no, you've given red cordial to the kids. Ah, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm showing my my UK upbringing because we didn't have red cordial. Um, we only had um, Ribena, the ah. um, black currant uh, black currant cordial, and of course that's very British and um, uh, no additives in Ribena. What about omega threes? Omega threes. Uh, well, before I do omega threes, let me just mention sugar, because sugar is something that people often talk about a sugar rush, a sugar high. Actually, there's no evidence to suggest that sugar is associated with hyperactivity, none at all. And there was a really neat television experiment where they took kids, only kids whose parents thought that they had a sugar rush or sugar hyperactivity, and they put them in a playground and they gave half of them sugary drinks and half of them um, non-sugary drinks. Parents didn't know which one they'd had. And the parents, and all of these were parents who said they could tell whether their child had had a sugary drink. None of them could tell which ones had had sugar and which ones hadn't. And that was a really neat kind of te television live, um, live, live experiment. So I just wanted to mention sugar, that sugar is not good for you. And I don't want the listeners to... Um, to be feeding sugar to their kids because it's not causing hyperactivity. It causes obesity and lots of other problems, but it doesn't cause hyperactivity. What about caffeine? Yeah, no, ca caffeine, again, there isn't an association. And in fact, if caffeine were going to do anything, you'd expect it to treat ADHD because it's closer to the stimulant medications that we use to treat ADHD than it is something that would cause ADHD. Uh, now that's caffeine in, in responsible, um, responsible quantities. I, I once poisoned myself with caffeine by taking too many um, espressos too early on in the day uh, and, and got a caffeine toxicity and it's really horrible. Um, heart, rating, uh, heart racing, um, feeling dizzy, feeling lightheaded and it lasted most of the day. So um, caffeine toxicity is a different thing but drinking a responsible amount of caffeine uh, whether by coffee tea or other other drinks um, it, it shouldn't cause ADHD and if anything you'd expect it to treat it but we've tried and it's not very good at treating ADHD it's not an effective treatment. I think I've had a similar toxicity experience I worked in a cafe uh, and love coffee and I was pouring shots and I just kept pouring and it, it's a horrible experience. Um, Okay, so omega omega threes, omega threes. So fish oils, um, and what we found for fish oils was that they have a very small but significant effect. Now, what that means is that overall, if you gave everybody with ADHD fish oils, then overall you would see a very small improvement. That 
might mean, however, that you don't see an improvement at all in some people, and you see a moderate or even a large improvement in a small number of people. The, the research evidence doesn't let us know which one of those would be, um, would, would be true yet. And so um, the, the, my advice on fish oils, it's, it's not something that I prescribe because the effect is actually pretty small. However, again, if you came to me and you said, listen, I, I've got ADHD, should I take fish oils? I would say, well, it's really up to you. It may benefit you um, if you take it and you think it's helping, then there aren't any bad effects from it. Continue to take it. Um, but if you don't fancy it, then it's probably not going to make too much difference. So, um, Are we talking about just capsules, one or two a day? Like what can, how much? Yeah, the, the, the doses that were given in the studies were the doses recommended by manufacturers of, of fish oils. Fish oils come in different, varieties they have different balance of uh, the different types of fish oil in it and there's not really a good uh, agreement different companies make different um, different profiles and each company says theirs is best but the evidence doesn't really support one over another um, as, as, as far as I'm aware I've not seen anything to say you've got to go and buy this brand and not this brand you 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 know, there may be a difference for you, but um, it would be a try it and see. Yeah, that's good to know. I've even got a, a vegan one made from some kind of algae. I have no idea what it means. I just like the idea more than than eating fish oil. I don't know. It kind of creeps me out. Okay, so uh, cognitive training. Cognitive training. This is things like the brain training exercises that you get on your phone. Um, but also there are much more structured approaches. And, um, you know, in order to do a... Um, a, a, a course of cognitive training, you're probably talking around sort of 20 different um, exposures to the cognitive training, uh, often one a day for, you know, two to three weeks we're, we're talking. So it's quite an intensive um, package of, of treatment. Unfortunately, the evidence would say that this cognitive training doesn't improve your ADHD symptoms. So we don't expect ADHD symptoms to get better from cognitive training. However, that said, cognitive training, if it's, for example, working memory training, so training the complex way that you hold and manipulate memories, the cognitive, that cognitive training may improve your working memory. And you may get benefits from that. So just because it's not going to improve your ADHD symptoms doesn't mean it's not something that should be tried. However, don't have the expectation that it's going to improve your, your ADHD and do have the recognition that it is pretty time intensive and even the benefits on memory are quite difficult to show that they last. And it's quite difficult to show that they last outside of the training experience. So what we call transfer, transferring from the training situation into day-to-day -day 
activities and into the real world. So again, it's not something that I have high on my list for recommending to people with ADHD. Um, however, if you came and said you wanted to do it and you were going to um, purchase it, then I'm not going to stop you. And I'm, I'm certainly not going to argue with you over it. Um, but if I was a parent, I would be judging, you know, do I want my child to be spending their time doing this? And there was one piece of research in Australia uh, that was really very interesting, where they did um, cognitive training, memory training for kids in school. This wasn't kids with ADHD, this was just kids in, in general. And when they looked, I think it was a year later, uh, at least quite some time later, they found that the kids with the, who'd done the cognitive training actually were doing academically less well than what? the kids who didn't have the training. And the explanation for that was probably that because the training took so long and because it meant stepping out from the class, uh. that those kids actually missed out on academic opportunities within the class that meant they didn't do as well. So it wasn't that the cognitive training per se was bad, but it was because you missed education. So you've got to what you've got to um, balance up all of these um, different aspects of, of these experiences. Yeah. So there's a trade-off there. Okay. What about neurofeedback? What is it? How does it work? And how effective was it? Oh, how does it work? Is a that's a crazy question. Um, I, I've done neurofeedback. And it is the one of the uh, most bizarre experiences I've ever had. What happens is that you have a uh, hat of electrodes called an EEG, electroencephalogram. They're electrodes that take the, the electricity from your brain, not put uh, electricity into your brain. So it's purely measuring the electrical activity of the brain. This feeds into a box, clever box, that interprets the uh, different patterns of electricity and the different waves of electricity in different parts of the brain and feeds that into a computer. And what you're doing on the computer, the one I did, was trying to um, get a cartoon pole vaulter to pole vault over the jump. And in order to do that, you had to change the balance of electricity, the way the patterns of electricity were in your brain. All of this is completely unconscious. So that you can't tell me how to do that. I just have to do it. And that's why it's such a bizarre experience that you have no idea why, but you can train your brain waves to get that guy over the pole vault. So you're not told think of bananas and that will be the right circuit for the machine to pick up to make the little man pole vault it. You're just told, will it, will it? And then somehow your brain just makes the right, does it work? Could you get it to pole vault? Uh, yeah, you can, not very well. I wasn't particularly good at it. <laughs> I've seen a much better uh, example of it. I don't know what that says about me. But in the um, Children's Science Museum in Dundee, where I worked before I came to Australia, they have a tug of war exhibit. 
and the tug of war has two kids, one sitting at each end with these hats on, willing the rope to be pulled towards them. And they put their brains against each other and and it works, you can do it. So you you can train brains to have different patterns of electoral activity. And these different patterns of electoral activity are thought to be related to how you um, how relaxed you are, um, how concentrated you are. And so the idea is to train the brain waves to be more uh, like a, a, a normal brain wave pattern and away from the patterns that they've identified in ADHD, where there's a different imbalance in these in these patterns. So the machine is set up so that the new brain waves that'll get the guy to pole vault or win the tug of rope competition is the right brainwave activity to avoid the symptoms and so by willing it long enough like how many hours are you sitting in front of this thing trying to pole vault it to um, well, improve I, your ADHD? I, yeah I, I i only sat in front of it for about an hour but if i had adhd i would have to sit in front of it daily or or, or regularly for um, multiple days now now that the you know the, we're talking about a lot of time um, in order to do this. Our evidence, Ron, that 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 I presented was that actually this doesn't work to improve ADHD. However, there are new studies coming out all the time and new techniques coming out all of the time, and I'm not going to dismiss neurofeedback as a potential future treatment for ADHD but I'm not gonna send my patients for neurofeedback yet because I don't think that we have the right methods. And there are even fancier ways of doing the neurofeedback where they put people into a brain scanner and they measure the brain waves and take pictures of the brain and how it's working at the same time. And they use those different feedbacks to help to understand how well the brain is being trained. Now, you know, these may turn out to be really, really helpful in the future, but my evaluation at the moment, and we're just re-looking at that evidence to see whether it's changed or not, my evaluation is that it's not something I recommend, but there are many people in Australia who practice neurofeedback, um, and, and it is something that people do do turn to as i say not not my recommendation yet but maybe in the future sounds interesting if anyone's yeah. listening that's particularly knowledgeable on this reach out to us we'd, we'd love to have a conversation with someone on this it sounds very intriguing i want to see if i can get the guy to pole vault <laughs> <laughs> yes parent training oh parent training this was a, a a really interesting one so for many many years particularly for young children with ADHD, what we call behavioral parent training. So it's actually helping parents to train their child to respond more positively and teaching parents to respond more positively to their children, reducing the negative interactions. Um, And this had been the treatment of choice in many international guidelines for ADHD before 
medication. So the first treatment that people should, should use. When we, this is partly why I told you the story at the beginning about the blind or not blind raters, not sighted, but whether they knew what was, was happening or not. When we asked parents who had been participating in parent training, does it work? They said, yes. When we asked other people who didn't know whether the child had received parent training or not to rate the child's ADHD symptoms, they couldn't tell a difference at all between those who had and hadn't. And when I say couldn't tell a difference at all, I mean couldn't tell a difference at all. There was absolutely zero um, effect in these blinded studies, these studies where, say, it wasn't known what the child had had. And that's led to a really intense debate amongst myself, my colleagues, about which one do we believe? If the parents think it's been helpful, then isn't that enough for them to be feeling better, would be one argument. But if that is a biased opinion, because you've spent a lot of time invested in something and it's not really helped the child as far as anyone else can see, does that really matter is the other side of it. Now, I, I think both arguments have some benefit and there's actually an easy get out to this. And the easy get out is that when we looked at these blinded ratings, of parenting behavior, were the parents parenting differently, we found good and clear evidence that the parents were parenting more positively and parenting less negatively. So there was less negative interactions between parents and kids and more positive. And the kids were behaving better. So they were less oppositional less defiant. And that's really important because kids with ADHD are often also quite oppositional. ADHD itself isn't about being oppositional, but ADHD and oppositionality go together quite, um, quite strongly. And so this parent training, even if we were tough on it and said, we'll only take ratings from people who didn't know what was, was happening. It improved parenting and it improved child behavior. And I think that's the important message. It doesn't seem to improve ADHD symptoms and that's important to acknowledge, but it does improve the overall situation, behavior and, and um, feeling for the child and their family. Hmm. As you walk through all these, the one thing that keeps coming to my mind is how objective you and your team have looked at them. And that gives me a lot of reassurance. You don't really have, um, you know, you don't really have skin in the game one way or the other. So it, it seems like it's a very objective scientific approach and certainly counterintuitive. I didn't expect some of these to be as effective as hmm. others. We, 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 we didn't either, to be honest. And yeah. we've continued to go back and reevaluate the evidence um, you know as new evidence um, appears. We haven't found anything to change our original thoughts yet apart from as I was saying the finding when we looked more closely 
that the parent training is important in some ways, and that finding that I alluded to that we may be getting better at doing neurofeedback. And that's a kind of watch this space um, for, for, for me. Your next slide was super interesting as well. And that takes us sort of to the conversation about medication. Uh, and so just for our listeners, um, um, Professor Cogill put the slide up on the screen and it had this graph and on the vertical axis were numbers from zero to I think 2.3 and that represented the effect size, how effective different medication was. And then he had all these little stacked bubbles, little dots along that chart. And so you could see with little labels what uh, different medication um, represented in terms of their effectiveness. And so firstly, he... Professor Cogill sort of anchored us with a couple of labels. And um, Professor, I hope it's okay if I just sort of describe this because mm. I think it's really important to the context of this conversation. So up the very, very top, which you um, relayed represented a, an extremely effective medication was a type of hepatitis C medication. And it held the position of, I think, 2.3, which was basically, you said, unheard of, extremely rare to find a drug that's that effective. So you're nodding, so that's good. I'm not telling fibs. Down the very bottom... Uh, you had um, aspirin as a preventative measure for cardiovascular disease. You know, a little aspirin a day will thin your blood, that sort of thing. And that was held at zero. And then sort of up the scale, you had all these different drugs. And then you plotted the effectiveness of medication for ADHD. And it was up the top. It was more effective than a lot of others. So can you dive into that? Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how effective it is relative to other drugs um, mm. what the different classes of drugs are, some of the side effects. Um, you had so many interesting insights in this. Mm. So, so the other piece, the other thing about the, the chart that you're talking about is that it had two halves to it. On the left-hand side, it had, and, and this is what you've described, it had the treatments for physical health problems and there was a scattering. I think you would say there was a scattering from the top to the bottom. That one, the hepatitis one, that really stuck out. That was sitting completely separate from, from everything else. But there was a big bulge. There were a big group of treatments that, um, that, 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 that sat there. For, for those of our, our listeners who are also seeing this at the same time, I'm sure we'll link it, but that's sort of the, the chart there. Yeah, so the left-hand side is all physical health and the right-hand side is all mental health. And the first thing that we kind of notice is that treatments for mental health have the same pattern of um, effectiveness as treatments for physical health. So there are some that are good and there are some that are not so good. When we think of medicines that we know about um, and that most people have thought about for mental health problems, things like antidepressants. Antidepressants get a score of um, around 0.5, if I remember rightly. That's quite good. And that's actually as good as a lot of treatments for, uh, for example, um, uh, high blood pressure, short-term treatments for high blood pressure. The antipsychotic medications, which I'm sure you've talked about on your, on, on your show, that are traditionally used for schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, they have an effect of 
0.25, so less than that for the antidepressants. It's still okay, but it's not super duper. The ADHD medications, or the stimulant medications, and we'll describe these different classes, they have an effect of one. And the effect of one is the highest that we have for any mental health treatments and is higher than most physical health treatments. So we're talking about a treatment that's very, very effective at doing the job that it should be, that, 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 it's, that it's made for. So great news, really, for anyone that's suffering from ADHD or that knows anyone, the medication available is incredibly effective. That's the conclusion, right? Yeah. Yes, it yeah. is. For And for most people, we have, um, so we, we have two different big classes of ADHD medications. We have ones that are called stimulants and um, I'm old fashioned. I use the proper name for things. So that their, their proper names are uh, methylphenidate and dexamphetamine. Methylphenidate, much better known as Ritalin, which is a brand name for one of the brands of methylphenidate. Um, dexamphetamine, people, um, many people will have, will have heard about. But now, the thing that may well be happening amongst a proportion of your listeners at the moment is thinking, oh, amphetamines, they're, they're bad. They're drugs that people abuse. Ice is an amphetamine. Um, cocaine is like amphetamines. They're, they're all stimulant drugs. Well, first, that's true. These are part of that same family, but they're also very different. They're very effective in treating ADHD, but they're not drugs that are effective at giving people a high, that would be abused, that are addictive in the same way that the other stimulant medications like ice, like cocaine are. So not only are these effective treatments for ADHD, we also have to emphasize that they're also very safe medications. And actually we've now got preparations that are becoming safer um, and, and um, much less easy to divert um, into um, incorrect in incorrect use. But at the doses that we use these medications, I can be really quite emphatic and say, you do not get a high from them. You do not get a buzz from them. They're not medications that would be abused um, in, 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 in that way. They are, however, as we said, extremely effective at reducing ADHD symptoms. And let me stick with those two medicines are two different types of stimulants, the Ritalin and the amphetamine type ones. And what we know is that not only are they effective in general across a whole group of people, but actually each of those is very effective in around seven out of every 10 people with ADHD. The good thing is, that each medication is effective in a different seven, a different 70%. So out of 10 people with ADHD, 
at least nine of them will get a good benefit, a strong benefit from one of those medicines. Now, some people may get some side effects, which mean they don't tolerate those medications, but nine out of 10, in fact, it's probably 19 out of 20, slightly more, will get a good benefit. So not only are they effective across the group, they're also very effective with a higher proportion of people. And actually no one is better than the other. They're just different from each other. And between the two of them, we can actually help the vast majority of people with ADHD. What's also nice is I have, I always say to my patients in my back pocket, I've got a couple of other non-stimulant medications. Now they're not quite as effective using those numbers you have, we call them the effect size. Um, the other medications which are called atomoxetine or guamphacine, I love that word, um, atomoxetine or, or guamphacine, and they have trade names, but let's just stick with the, the real names. They're not as effective. Their numbers are about 0.7. Now, that means they're not as good as these kind of, let's call them super drugs that we've got, the, the really effective medications, but they're still up near the top of your chart in effectiveness. And they're still towards the top of the effectiveness in mental health medications and actually in physical health medications. So sometimes people get the feeling that these are sort of second rate medications because they're not as good as the, the best ones that we've got. But in actual fact, if your ADHD doesn't respond well to one of the stimulants, then it, if it does respond to one of these other medications, you're still getting a pretty good treatment. Hmm. That's a lot of information, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That, that's extremely interesting, though. Um, we had a conversation. We haven't published this yet uh, on the podcast, but we had a conversation with someone who suffers from bipolar. And they took us through their medication schedule in, in detail. And they talked about how important it was not to drop the meds and take it again one day to be consistent in taking your medicine every day. Does um, ADHD medication require the same level of consistency or can you not use it? And then for the day that you really need it, take some. Okay. Again, really good question. Um, the answer is... It depends. So the stimulant medications will only work on the day that you take them. And they'll only work for a maximum of about 12 to 13 hours on that day. So they don't give you coverage for the full day. They give you coverage at say you take it at seven, they'll probably give you coverage from uh, eight till eight, or then till, till eight. Um, if you decide not to take it the next day, then it will be as if you never took it. But if you decide to take it the next day, it will work in an hour. And so you can pick and choose with these medications about when you take them. My recommendation when you start the medication, however, and a lot of people say, well, I just want to take it at school. I don't want to take it at the weekends. My recommendation is when you start taking it, take it every day, because then you can see what impact it has, hopefully positive impact it has, 
on you, even when you're not at school. Because remember, I said ADHD doesn't just affect your learning, it affects you at home, it affects your ability to join in with sports and clubs. And so for a lot of the kids that we see, they're having problems in all aspects of their lives. They don't get invited to birthday parties because they've got a bad reputation as the kid that spoils the birthday party. So we suggest you take it every day to start with. If you find that you don't feel that there's a benefit in particular situations or circumstances, then you know it's up to you. You, you can choose not to take it. Adults, it can be slightly different because adults can have um, different patterns to work, different stresses in their lives, and also are a bit more able to manage some aspects of their lives. So uh, I'm, I'm not, well, I don't think I'm strict, but I, I still would recommend that an adult tried their medication across all situations. But again, they're going to then choose about whether they just take it on particularly stressful days or whether they take it on, um, on, on every day. The other two medicines, the guanfacine and the atomoxetine, actually they do need to be taken every day um, because they have a much more general effect across the 24 hour um, period. And they, they require um, really sort of a constant presence of the medication. So for them, the situation's different and it's because they work in a very different way. And what are the side effects of the two classes? Okay, so the main side effects of the stimulant medications that, that people notice are um, a loss of appetite, which is to a degree almost universal for people who take these medications. It's not actually, I mean, some people find that they, they still eat very well, but most people find some reduction in appetite. Luckily, that is also time limited. So it shouldn't be a problem in the morning before you take your medication and it will wear off in the evening as your medication wears off. The other one is um, difficulty sleeping. These are stimulant medications. And for some people, uh, those effects can last through into the evening and they have a difficulty getting off to sleep. However, interestingly, when we measured this in our patients, we found that half the people on the stimulant medication said, oh, I've got some problems sleeping with it. It's not huge necessarily, but I, it does interfere with sleep a bit. The other half had sleep problems before they started their medication because people with ADHDs find it difficult to turn their brains off. Their brains are active and always going. And, and so um, for those people, actually they found that having had a day with medication meant they were more rested in the evening and they slept better. The other problem that um, is there and people won't notice it unless the doctor measures it properly, uh, other common problem is it can increase people's blood pressure. And so we do need to check people's blood pressure uh, and make sure that it isn't, um, that, that it hasn't been increased. And if it is, we need to, to think about what we can do about that. It's not common to have problems from increased blood pressure, but it is something that we need to, to monitor. But the other thing, the thing that people worry about is, will this medication turn me into a zombie? 
Will it turn my child into a zombie? Will they become sort of blank people? But my experience is that that's very uncommon. That doesn't mean I haven't seen it, but it's very uncommon. Actually, it isn't uncommon for mum to come to me and say, oh, I, I think you've turned Johnny into a zombie. Um, when we talk about it, actually, what's happened is that this child who was incredibly overactive and uh, challenging to parent has actually calmed down very considerably and is now what we might consider as normal. And this behavior is just so different from what mum has been used to that it's interpreted as being a zombie. Whereas other people who actually see Johnny say, no, actually Johnny's doing really, really well now. And Johnny himself doesn't feel as if it's, um, as, as, as if it's bad. So it's, it's something that you know, we need to talk about and we need to, um, to examine. If someone's been misdiagnosed and they take the, the medication, what does it mean for them? Uh, well, uh, actually, the Ritalin medication, also the, the amphetamine medication, helps everybody to concentrate and helps everybody to focus. And that's one of the reasons why these medications do sometimes get misused. So students, for example, studying for exams will sometimes, and it seems to be increasingly a difficulty, will sometimes access Ritalin in order to help them focus and study better. Now, I don't support that as a, a valid use of these medications, um, but it is something that, um, you know, that we, we see. So uh, your memory can improve, your concentration can improve, your focus will improve with these. So taking the medication and having a positive response isn't diagnostic and shouldn't be used as a way to diagnose ADHD. That's the interview and that's the assessment that we talked about at the beginning. And we only give these medications when people have ADHD. And that means when those symptoms are really causing them problems. My last question for today, Professor, is for the 2.5% of adults that have ADHD, can you take these drugs for decades, for your entire life? Are there long-term impacts on your organs for, for the load that they represent? Yeah. Um, Long-term safety is something we still need more information on. However, through a lot of studies, particularly in Scandinavia and ones I've been involved in in Hong Kong, we can now track the use of these medications over the long term using these big population data resources that we have. And we haven't yet identified any long-term negative effects of taking these medications. So whilst I will uh, acknowledge that we still need better better sorry studies to look at this and that's something that I'm actively involved in um, trying to uh, to support and and work that we're trying to do to date we haven't found any um, negative long-term impacts on your body on your brain on your organs as you've as you've mentioned or on your health what we have identified, and this is, is really important, is a lot of 
what I call quite distant benefits of the medication. So for example, a study that looked at the impact of medication on um, those who had broken the law, offenders in Sweden, and found that they broke the law less, they, they repeat offended less when they were on medication compared to when they weren't on medication. We found that rates of suicidal behaviors, one of the things we didn't touch on, and it's very important in ADHD, ADHD increases the risk of suicide, probably around four times. It also increases the risk of um, dying in adults around four times. So the mortality rate is four times higher. Most of that mortality doesn't come from suicide, it comes from accidents. And we know that when you're treated, the rate of accidents goes down, but also the rate of suicidal behaviors goes down. So we see some really important positive long-term effects of these, uh, of these medications. Um, but you know, to go back to your answer, no, they appear safe in the long-term. Really appreciate your time, Professor Coggill. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Okay, well, that's it for today. We hope that you've enjoyed this conversation with Professor David Coggill. You can find us at talklink.com.au. Keep well and see you soon.